uh, I encourage you to open to Luke 17. Um, while you turn there, let me confess to you that my original plan, as you see there in the bulletin, was to go from uh, verse 1 all the way down through verse 19, uh, which I'm sure none of you will be surprised to hear was far too ambitious for me to try to, uh, to, to do at one time. Um, but I, I need to say at the front, I really do think that those four sections are connected together. And we're gonna, I'm going to tell you why in just a minute. But for the sake of time today, and because I think we'll only make it this far, let's, let's just read down through verse 6, okay? So beginning in verse 1, it says, And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he was cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. The Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, as we come now to this portion of your holy and inerrant word, we pray for your wisdom, we pray for your guidance, we pray that you would apply this to our hearts in a way that that would be meaningful to us, in a way that would address our sin, in a way that would show us Jesus, Lord, help us to, to bow under the authority of these words, because they are your words. Teach us now, we pray, by the power of your Holy Spirit, amen. Well, I wonder this morning if any of you, whether it was through some personal accomplishment, uh, whether it was through maybe a reward received at some point of your, in your life, have ever found yourselves feeling this, this great sense of pride, this great sense of satisfaction, dare I say maybe just a, a little bit of arrogance in yourself in what you have achieved, only to, to almost immediately... Uh, be reminded of your complete inadequacy, uh, only to almost immediately be reminded that, that maybe you shouldn't feel quite as puffed up, quite as confident as you do. Now, in many ways, this is the story of my life, but, but uh, I do remember one particular moment when I was uh, 11 or 12 years old, I can't remember which one, our baseball team, we won the state tournament and we got to go to the regional tournament, which was in Florida. It was this great achievement, and you can imagine as a group of teenage boys, we, we really thought we were something. Like We thought we were like the 27 Yankees. We thought we were really, really good. That is until we got to Florida, and the team that we were playing, they pulled up in a Greyhound bus, and the first guy that got off the bus, who turned out to be the guy that was the starting pitcher against us, was my size now... And he had facial hair like I have now. Now, needless to say, immediately we came down about six notches. And then when we got on the field, we came down a good six more because we realized really quick that we were not nearly as good as we thought we were. It's a good reminder that there's always people bigger and faster and stronger and smarter than you are. Now, look, we, we know that, that life is often full of these sorts of reminders. 
And sometimes that's a good thing. My mom always says, you better not get too big for your britches. And things like this can can often serve to take us down just those, those few notches that we need. Other times, things like this can serve to to keep us out of trouble before we get there. You know, our hubris can often lead us into places that that we shouldn't go, and things like this can help remind us that that we shouldn't go there. Now, I begin there because it seems to me that as we turn to Luke 17 today, that, that we have this sort of thing going on in what Jesus says here to his disciples. Remember, for, for the last few weeks, really, for, for our whole study of Luke, we have seen Jesus really sort of hammer the Pharisees. He, he really has done that in the past two chapters really, really well, and rightly so. You know, he, he's really gotten on the Pharisees in so many ways. He's laid bare their sinful hearts, and he's made it clear that their eternal, uncompromising consequences that are coming to them. There are eternal, uncompromising consequences that are coming to them. We, we saw that last week. If their hearts are not changed, if their hearts are not transformed by the gospel that Jesus came to bring and that he came to accomplish through his work. And so, you know, rightly so, we've seen Jesus really get on these guys who were supposed to be the religious elite. But you can imagine or at least I can, for the 12 disciples, for the apostles themselves, as they've seen Jesus do this over and over and over again, it had to give them what I'm going to call sort of an insider's complex, right? That They had to sort of stand back and say, "Uh uh-huh, see, all of y'all out there, all of you Pharisees, we're the the ones that he chose to follow him. We're we're the ones closest to him. Look at all of y'all better tighten up. And y'all better do like, like we kind of gave them, I would think, an arrogance that, that was maybe undeserved. And certainly we see this play out in the Gospels, right? When you're debating amongst yourselves who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, there's a little bit of arrogance going on there that, that has clearly missed at least part of what the Gospel is all about. But notice again what Christ says there in verse 3. As, as they are finishing up, as he finishes up all of this that he says to the Pharisees back in chapter 16, verse 3 he says to his disciples, pay attention to yourselves. Watch yourselves. Now clearly he's saying that in the context of that little section, but I really think, and other commentators have pointed this out too, I think verse 3 is the verse that holds together verses 1 through 19. What, What Jesus is doing here is he is making sure that his disciples keep a watch on their words and on their attitudes as they deal with a lost and dying world, particularly as they deal with one another as children of God. As they deal with the church, he wants to make sure that they are watching their own hearts. That they aren't getting, as I say, a little bit too big for their britches. Now before we jump into this, let me just say that it seems to me that that this passage is one that is very relevant and very needed for us as church members in our day. And so I hope, I hope that this week and next week, you'll be able to stay with me and we'll be able to listen hard. Because as the battle lines in our nation, in this world, 
continue to be drawn more clearly, as the tensions between the church and the world continue to grow, it's very, very easy for us as church members, as a church, as individuals, to look out and know what we don't want to be. It's very easy for us to say, hey, we, we don't want to act like that. It's very easy for us to be like the Pharisee in the story and say, God, I thank you that I am not like them. But what's a whole lot harder for us to do is to actually live out the gospel as Jesus calls us to live it out. It's real easy for us to put ourselves on a pedestal, to put ourselves kind of on the high horse here. But we have a tendency to forget who we are. That apart from Christ, we, we have no reason to boast. Apart from Him, we are sinners. We are just like those folks out in the world. And so if we're going to go out with anything, it's not going out with ourselves, it's not going out with our greatness, with, with holding ourselves up. It's going out, holding up Jesus. And so I feel like in this passage, he, Jesus is going to remind us of some really sobering truths. Sobering truths that, that for the, the disciples probably brought them down a few notches in their view of themselves and some sobering truths that should bring us down a few notches in our view of ourselves as well, okay? All right, so let's look at it together. The first thing that I want you to see are some sobering interactions, and I mean that on kind of a personal, relational level, interactions personally with the world, with others around us. And you see it on two levels. First there, Jesus says in verse 1, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. This verse begins with what really is a sobering reminder in and of itself. He says, again, temptations to sin are sure to come. In other words, because we live in a fallen world with fallen people, because we ourselves have sinful hearts, the opportunity for and the temptation to sin will be the reality of this age until Christ returns. Now that should serve as both an encouragement and a warning to us, okay? This idea that, that temptations are sure to come. On the one hand, we take heart, but because we are reminded that we are not alone in our temptations. We're not the only one. If you're here today and you're struggling, if you feel like Satan is on top of you, you need to know that you're not alone. You're not by yourselves, that you're not isolated or away from God. You need to know that, that he knows this is the reality of our world. He knows it because he made us, but he also knows it because Jesus came as a man into this world and experienced the temptations that we do. He understands what it is to be us. And so as Hebrews chapter 4 says, we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses because he became like us it's great encouragement here on the other hand however this statement should really cause us to take a hard look at our lives to whatever degree we are not struggling with temptation maybe the degree to which we have accepted it and the resulting sin in our lives 
Now, Jesus is a realist. He, he's, he's realistic enough to understand that this is the reality. This is what it is to live here. And so if, if we are, are not struggling to some degree or another, if we are not resisting to some degree or another, friends, we may have made friends with our sin. We may have made friends with our temptations. And so there's a warning. There's encouragement and a warning here. But notice, it's not simply our own temptations that we should be concerned about in this passage, is it? It's also the temptation of others that should concern us, and particularly our role in causing those temptations. Woe to the one through whom these temptations come. Woe to the one who causes one of these little ones sin. In fact, he says, it would be better to tie a stone around our necks and to drown in the heart of the sea than to put a stumbling block in the way of another person, particularly in the way of God's people. That's heavy. That's a, that's a big warning, too. It's clearly Jesus means business here, but friends, how often and how easily we all do this. How easily we lead one another into sin. As parents, we, we take our kids and we give them our bad habits, don't we? we? We teach them the things that they probably should not be doing. They take after us in so many ways. As husbands or wives, we provoke one another to anger. As friends... We lead one another into gossip or we cause one another to covet because we are so boastful about all that, that we have, all of our accomplishments, all that we've done. In so many ways, in so many of our interactions, we lead not only ourselves but others to sin. Now, someone will say, well, hey, that, that's, that's their problem. They, they need to be responsible for their own actions. I, I didn't make them do it. I didn't twist their arm. They were pretty ready to sin to begin with. And look, that certainly may be true. We all are responsible for our own actions. But as Christians, we, we really are our brother's keeper. We really are united to one another in such a way that we are responsible for each other. We are not simply obligated to me, to ourselves, but to those in the pew next to you, to those who are part of Christ's church in China or Pakistan or wherever. We're responsible to the whole. We're to care for and to look out for one another. Friends, let's just stop just for a moment simply to confess what a great need we have here for repentance. Each of us, myself to begin with, what a need we have to repent in this area. Especially, now Christ has primarily the church involved here. Don't, don't lead uh, brothers and sisters in the church to sin. But, but as we as a church interact with a lost and dying world, we have a need for repentance here as well. Because nothing gives us more pleasure than to see people that are fighting against us further themselves into more sin, further their situation and make it even worse. We 
we provoke people outside of our walls, we push them, and we push them in a way that, that is clearly contrary to what Jesus says right here. We, we push the world towards sin, and so we have a need for repentance. We have a need to ask that God would help us not only not lead us into temptation as we pray, but that we would not lead others. Well, with all of that in mind, it's no wonder that Jesus says in verse 3, pay attention to yourselves. Keep a close eye on yourselves. And notice it leads him to a second sobering area of human interaction. Not only are we not to be the cause of sin in others' lives, but we are also called to forgive when others sin against us. Again, verse 3. He says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now the sequence that Jesus gives us here is important for us to recognize. First, he says, if your brother sins against you, do what? Rebuke him. Rebuke him. Now, that's, that's for some of us, we hear that. And we like that a lot. We're, some of us are, are, are really ready to rebuke others, right? We're really ready to show other people their sin. Uh, for others of us, we hear that and we want to push back from it. We don't want confrontation on any level at any time. We don't want to address the sins in other people's lives. But, but notice, it is important. Notice that, that this rebuke is, is something that Jesus calls us to do. Ben and I were talking this week uh, just about love and the perception of love out in the world and how we think about love and the fact that that real biblical love is not what the world holds up to us where we just let people do whatever in the world they want to do. That's not love. It's not love if we know that there are really consequences for our actions in the world, right? Real love out in the world is going to be saying, hey, I love you enough to come to you and say this is sin and you need to repent and you need to look at your life. Real love disciplines, real love shows where we are at fault. And so rebuking to some degree is needed and it's right, but we also need to make sure we understand that it is rebuking in love. That it is rebuking with humility and tenderness and much prayer, much prayer. And with a sense of wanting this person that that we are confronting to do what? You rebuke them and then what happens? They repent. That's, That's always, that should always be the motivation of our hearts when we address the the sin in somebody else's life. Whether it's the, the session here whether it's as individuals, our goal is to uh, lead someone to repentance, right? Our goal is restoration within the church. Then notice the next obligation, when or if they repent, what are we called to do? Called to forgive. To forgive. To forgive freely. Now, friends, let's be honest. This, this is where things get a little bit uh, tested for us. And I'm, I'm thankful that Ben 
did what he did during the children's sermon because we saw a little bit of that up here, right? When he said, hey, if you forgive once, that's okay. If you forgive a second time, then, then things got a little bit more shaky. But then when we got to seven times, I couldn't see who it was, but somebody was like, oh, oh, oh. and let's be honest, all of our hearts go, hang on now. You know, fool me once, shame on me, but fool me twice, shame on you, and then fool me seven times, you're out of here, right? We're not doing that. Notice here, Jesus, he doesn't give us room for that sort of thing. He says, if your friend, this brother, sins against you seven times in a day, in one day, and he repents and he turns, then you must forgive. Now, some have taken this to mean that, that we only have to forgive if somebody repents, and we know that's not the case, right? We know that other places in Scripture clearly point out to us that, that we are to repent, even if, even if, or we are to, to forgive even if people don't come to us in repentance. But that's more for our benefit, right? What, what, what Jesus has here, I really believe he's thinking for this brother's benefit, right? You're going to him for his benefit. He's repenting, which is of his benefit, and now... You are forgiving him for his benefit. Think about it. Think about those times where you've had to go and apologize to somebody. And you didn't want to do it. You knew it was going to crush them or it was going to be awkward. It was going to be awful. But in those moments when they say, you're forgiven. What's that feeling like? It's hardly a better one, right? When you know that this person whom you have offended, maybe whom you love, forgives you and they really forgive you. Not a whole lot better than that. Well, that's the idea that, that Jesus has here. He says, as you interact with other people, forgive them for their benefit. Forgive them. Show them their sin. Lead them to repentance. And forgive. Now, again, someone will say, well, clearly this person is not repentant. <laughs> clearly, if they have sinned against you seven times, they are not really sorry. But I love uh, what Leon Morris, what he says about this passage. He said, in the world's point of view, a sevenfold repetition of offense in one day must, count uh, must cast doubt on the genuineness of the sinner's repentance. But this is not the believer's concern. His business is forgiveness. I like that. That applies to so many things in our lives. Not only forgiveness, but Christian charity, Christian mercy, Christian a lot of things. Our concern is not what the other person's doing. Our concern is what Christ has called us to do. Our business, in this case, is forgiveness. And we forgive because that's what he's called us to do. And more importantly, we forgive, as Ben has reminded us, because that's what we've received. We have sinned against him over and over and over again. But through Christ, what does he do? If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins. Over and over and over again, we have received mercy from the one who has every right to judge, from the one who has every right not to extend forgiveness. And so this is truly giving what we have received. 
It's sobering interactions. It's sobering forgiveness. Secondly, in this passage, I want you to notice sobering faith. The disciples, they hear all of this, uh, and they react as we would expect. They react as, as we might want to react right now. Verse 5, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. In other words, Jesus, we can't do this. Seven times, don't lead other people into temptation. We can't keep ourselves out of temptation. You're going to have to increase our faith. You're going to have to equip us to make this possible. Now, in one sense, this seems to be one of the more reasonable and well-thought-out things that the disciples say in all of Scripture, right? You know, they, they get it wrong a lot, but this seems like the right response, and in so many ways, it is the right response. They recognize their inability. that They recognize that they need faith to do these things, and they run to the only one who can give them that faith. They run to Jesus. And so to that degree, friends, this is a good response. We need to mimic the disciples in that way. When we are overwhelmed with life, when we are overwhelmed particularly with what he calls us to do, the right response is to run to the Lord, to run to Jesus. He's the only one who can equip us. But I do want you to notice how Jesus responds. Because this is where the sobering part comes in. And it's it's surprising that he responds this way in verse 6. They ask for more faith, increase our faith. But notice he says, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could, move, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and go to the sea, and it would obey you. If you would simply have the, the tiniest amount of faith, you could do the impossible. In other places, he says you can move mountains. You could forgive seven times in a day. The point here is the issue is not the size of our faith. The issue is the presence of faith at all. Again, that's sobering. Because what clearly can these disciples not do and what can we not do either? I can't go out there and tell that little tree in the garden right there to move and go to Pickwick, and it, it's not going to do it, right? I can't go say to the mountains, move, and then be moved. So what's the problem? Do, do we lack faith completely? Or are we not resting in Jesus? Well, many times and in other places, Jesus seems to affirm the, the faith of these disciples, that, that they are resting in him. So I don't think it's a matter of not having faith at all, but, but as William Hendrickson points out, I think it's an issue of active faith, a faith that, that is constantly being nourished by the one in whom faith rests. You know, faith is not the, the object Faith, faith is the instrument by which we reach through and we grab on to the Lord. And so it's not a, the matter of how much, how big of faith we have. It is the one who is on the other end that is the, the real issue here, right? It is the, the great God, not great faith, that we are looking to. 
But it's a faith that just like a mustard seed must be nourished to be viable and to grow, so too must our faith be nourished by, by constant contact with our Savior. We must be constantly putting faith into practice by looking to Him to do the things that, that only He can do. No, we can't resist temptation the way that He calls us to here. No, we can't forgive the way that He calls us to do here. We don't rebuke sin the way that we should. Only He, by faith, working in us, can do those things. But again, as, as Morris says, and this is where I got that, that I said, he says, not so much great faith in God that is required, but it is a great God that is required. Friends, even if you feel today that your faith is very small, if it is resting in this God, in this Savior, if you are truly trusting in Him to do what only He can do, then let me say to you today that there really is nothing that is impossible. That's, that's what Philippians 4.13 is all about. Paul, in that whole book, is wrestling with the, the, the situation that his life is in, the life that, that God has given him. And he knows it's the life that God has given him. He's in jail. He's about to die. He thinks he may die. He, he wants to go home to be with the Lord, but he knows he needs to stay here for these people's benefits. Finally, in Philippians 4.13, what does he say? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? I can do all things. Now, the point of that verse is that he can do all the things that God is calling him to do. Not I can go out and do whatever I want to do. I can do all the things that the Lord is leading me to do. Why? Because he knows he has a great God. He knows he is trusting in a Savior who can do all things. It's the object of our faith. Even if it's small faith, it is the object of our faith that makes the difference. Well, friends, that's where we're going to stop for today. Uh, but that's a good place to stop. Because the question, of course, is now, as we consider these things, do you have faith? <laughs> whether it's a mustard seed size or whether it's a mountain size, do you have faith? You know, we read the Bible and we know that our sinful hearts are incapable of doing so many of the things that Christ and that God call us to do. You know, if I, if I were to list off the Ten Commandments to you right now, beginning with number one, we're in trouble. All the way down to number ten, we're in trouble. And so our only hope is the hope of these disciples is to cry out for faith. It's to cry out to the only one who can give us that faith. And it is to rest in His ability, in His promise, to do and to give all things to those who love Him. And as we conclude, may God give us faith in Christ. And may His Spirit teach us to walk in this faith day after day. Let's pray together. Father, as we... Consider these things. We pray that, that you would help us, that you would lead us. Lord, the reality is, is that uh, temptation is with us always. Uh, 
the, the temptation to, to not forgive, the, the temptation to, to look to other things besides you for help and for security, the temptation that, that this world throws up before us over and over and over again. And in so many ways, we've become friends with those things. And so, Lord, we need you to, to build faith in our hearts so that we might stand, so that we might stand in the truth, so that we might stand on everything that Jesus has said to us, Lord, how we thank you that, that when we're resting in him, we have a sure peace. We have a sure foundation that will not be moved, no matter what this world may throw at us. That through faith in him, there, there truly is nothing impossible. Even our hearts of stone can be turned into hearts of flesh. Even those of us who were your enemies can now be your children. We can spend eternity with you. And so, Lord, work this faith in our hearts. Give us your spirit. Show us the reality of, of who, who we are. Help us to rest in Jesus. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Our closing hymn is hymn number 533. 533. Let's stand and sing. <laughs>